Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Join me as we pray together. Our gracious Father, as we come to you today in the mighty name of Jesus, we come acknowledging that we need you. We need you to help us to understand. Your Word. We need You to help us to take that Word and apply it to our lives. We need You to help us live it out. We need to be so yielded to You and Your Spirit that it's actually You who is living in us and through us these truths. We desperately are in need, O oh God, of Your presence and Your power in our lives. Just as we read about Israel being delivered out of the, the bondage, the slavery in Egypt, and being led in the wilderness by Your presence, we through Jesus Christ, have been delivered from slavery and sin, and now we need Your presence to be leading us in our day-to-day -day lives. We do want to pray for those that are part of our congregation who are, who are sick and who are struggling in various ways. Lord, we Pray for uh, Randy Malad as he's uh, hopefully able to come out of the hospital today after having uh, surgery, gallbladder uh, removed this past uh, couple days. And we pray for his full and complete recovery. Pray that there would be no further complications for him. Pray for Selena as she's been diagnosed with COVID. We pray for others, Lord, who are dealing with not only physical, but emotional struggles. Certainly we all, Lord, are dealing with the spiritual reality that we are in a battle against a real enemy that is unseen, and yet he is very much at work to discourage and distract us from following Christ. We live in a world, a culture that is so contrary to the word of truth. And Lord, we confess to you, we don't even know the depths to which it is so diametrically opposed to you because we've grown up in it. It's all over us. So we ask that you will give us eyes to see reality of the spiritual darkness that pervades our culture. They give us the ability 
to rise above, to live an authentic and genuine Christian life as we trust in you, to live the life of Christ in and through us, for the glory of your name, for the advancement of your kingdom, for the good of your people. Until you come, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Any goal worth pursuing will require some intentional decisions. Any athlete who wants to compete at a high level, whether that be high school or college or professional uh, Olympics, whatever level in that particular sport, we need to be intentional in how he or she trains. Choosing to give up some things, choosing to pursue others. Any musician that wants to reach a certain level of accomplishment We'll need to make intentional decisions about how they spend their time practicing, getting uh, lessons, what particular areas need to be worked on to get better and better. Those who garden need to decide what to trim and prune and what not to, what to allow to grow. Intentional decisions need to be made if we are to pursue any specific goal. And the pursuit of spiritual maturity is no different. Spiritual maturity doesn't just happen by chance. It happens through intentional decision making. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul, I believe, is encouraging us to pursue intentionally spiritual maturity. And in verses 15 through 21, there are three admonitions that I want to draw out from this text that we need to follow if we're going to be intentional in our pursuit of spiritual maturity. Let me read the passage, and then we'll point out these admonitions. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory 
by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. We need to be intentional in our pursuit of spiritual maturity. How do we do that? First of all, we should live in light of our salvation. Verse 16, he says, keep living by the same standard to which you have attained. And what attain means to have arrived at something, to, to reach the, the goal, to have gotten something. What have we gotten? What have we already attained? I would contend with you that it is our salvation. He says, therefore, in verse 15, obviously pointing back to what he's already been talking about, which is, go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 3, when he was, he was showing that, that in his uh, flesh, as a Pharisee, as a pursuer of, of Jewish religion, he had all these accolades. That he pointed to, that he held on to, that he trusted in to be somebody. That was his identity. He says, I count all of that to be a liability in my pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I no longer look to those things. They are rubbish to me in comparison to knowing Christ. He says, I want to know Him. Right? I want to know Him more deeply. I want to surrender to Him more fully. I want to know Him. I want to know the power of His resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship of suffering of Christ. I want to be conformed to His death. That is the death to self. That I might attain to the, the out-resurrection from the dead. I want to, I want to know the self. I want to deny and, and die to the self-life. I want to... I want to attain to the Christ life, that life that is about resurrection. It's about, it's about life. And then he says, listen, I don't believe I've attained it yet. I don't consider myself as having laid hold of it. And I'm pressing on to lay hold of that for which I also was what? Laid hold of by Christ. I believe that's his salvation his righteousness that's been declared to him because of Christ. He says that I'm, I forget those things I used to hold on to. I'm pressing forward. I'm reaching toward that goal. And I press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So I think what he's saying to us is keep living up to the standard. Keep living in light of the salvation that you have in Christ. Now you might think Paul is contradicting himself. He says, let us therefore as many as are perfect. Didn't he just tell us in a couple verses before he wasn't perfect? Yes, he did. He says, not that I've already obtained, verse 12, or I've already become perfect. It's the same Greek root, but it's a different uh, form of the word. In verse 12, it speaks of perfection as that which is complete, that which nothing can be added to. Perfection in comparison to imperfection. In verse 15, it's maturity 
or grown-upness as opposed to infantile. And so he's saying, listen, I know that I haven't already arrived at a perfect place. Then he says, listen, I want those of you who are grown up, who are no longer infants, to have the same attitude. What is that attitude? Well, the word attitude here means to think, implying not only thought, but also affections, will, and moral consideration. It's a whole mindset. And I think the attitude that he's speaking of is the attitude that he has in verses 12, 13, and 14. This attitude that I haven't arrived, but I'm pressing forward. I'm going after the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, which is what? I believe it's the Christ life. It's Christ so alive in me that it's no longer me, it's Him at work in me. So how are we going to live out our salvation? We must pursue the right attitude. It's also possible, and certainly linked to this, is the last time Paul uses this word in Philippians, and that's back in chapter 2, in verse 5, after he says we need to have this humility of mind that puts others' needs ahead of our own, and he says in verse 5, have this attitude or mindset in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Again, it's Christ living in us. So we need to have this, we need to pursue this right attitude. And then he says, and if anything, in anything, you have a different attitude. If you think differently about this, if you have a different perspective on this, if this is not the pursuit you have, like Paul says, this one thing I do, if this is not our focus in our, our direction of our life, our, our singular focus, he says, if you have some other way of going about this, listen, God will reveal that to you. Ask him. If you don't agree that this is what Paul is saying, or you don't agree that this is how you live your life, ask God to show you. I'm not talking about somebody who's just looking for justification to live their own life. And so many times, this is the case, right, with even within the church, is that we want just enough of Jesus to be saved, but not so much of Jesus that he changes our life, and now we live a life to honor him. We want to live a life to honor ourselves. We want to live a life that makes us happy. This is oftentimes what is purported in our culture, the American dream. You can have it all. It's all about you. It's all about what you can get, what you, you can become, and it's all about you. And the reality is this goes contrary to the gospel of Christ. It's not about you. It's about him. It's not about what you can become for you. It's about what God can do in you to be to the glory of his name. This is our problem at times. We bring so much of what is our culture, the good and the bad, into our, 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 the church and into our understanding of Christianity, and it gets all messed up. So we have to be careful. I'm not saying it's wrong to be patriotic. I think we ought to be. We live in this land. We ought to stand for what, this, what is good about this place and the freedoms that we have. 
We just can't get confused into thinking that being a Christian is the same as being an American. It's not the same. This is about dying to self. Previous generations had a better understanding of this. When they were willing to give their life to secure our freedoms. To maintain them. Now, our culture is about, I want my freedom, but I don't want to, I don't want to pay anything for it. I want everybody to bow down to me and my choices and my desires, and my whims. Is any wonder we're in the mess we are? And we brought it into the church. So if you have a different attitude about what it means to live for Christ than dying to self and letting Christ live through you, then just bring that before God and ask Him to show you. If your desire is to really know what God's Word says and how you are to live it out, God will show you. But if your desire is to just justify yourself, you're probably in for a world of hurt because God's going to make life really difficult. However, let's keep living by that same standard in which we've attained. Let's keep that goal in mind and keep living. That word living means to walk orderly, to march in rank, to proceed in a row. It was used metaphorically to speak of walking in a relationship with someone else. Right? When you're taking a walk with somebody, you walk together. Stride by stride, right? You don't just walk on ahead. Walk together. And we are to walk in relationship with Jesus Christ, first and foremost. Our actions are to be in line with and flow out of a relationship with Christ. I'm not talking about external self-righteousness like the Pharisees, but an internal life of Christ flowing out of us. It is what Christ has done for us that, that then produces some transforming work in us that will bring forth our actions. I want to quote again from Dane Ortland. I think he does a good job of explaining this reality. After talking about justification, as we, we read a little earlier, he talks about sanctification. And he said, just as justification was an outside-in transaction, sanctification is an inside-out work. It's the work inside of us that produces external righteousness or external behavior. He says, think how we grow physically. I don't ask my six-year-old daughter, Chloe, to take her lunch and smear it all over her body. I tell her to eat it. The food needs to get inside her, not remain on the outside. One of the great mistakes made generation after generation through church history is to slather rules onto our behavior and think that external behavior is what fosters or even ex ex uh, uh, accurately reflects vital spiritual growth. 
We think if we just do the right stuff on the outside, then that's spiritual growth. It's like putting your food all over your body instead of eating it. He said, this is the mistake of the Pharisees who, Jesus said, clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. They are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. He goes on to say, or consider one of the most astonishing texts in the New Testament. Before we look at it, let me ask you, what do you picture when you hear the word godliness? I'm going to guess it doesn't look like the picture Paul paints in 2 Timothy of what people will be like in the time between Christ's first and second coming, where he gives the longest vice list in the New Testament. And here's what he writes, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 2 through 4. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's 18 vices. The list is suffocating in its rising portrait of wickedness. There's a 19th trait on this list. One last mark of spiritual bankruptcy the church must be weary of. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Apparently, being a lover of self can look like godliness. Being a lover of money can look like godliness. Someone can be filled with pride and arrogance, and all the while presented as godliness. One can be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, and to the outside observer, it looks like godliness. True sanctification, true growth and holiness is internal. It will manifest itself on the outside. For the tree is known by its fruit. The tree creates the fruit. The fruit does not create the tree. As Edward Fisher in his famous Puritan treatise on sanctification explained that external conformity to rules without an internal reality fueling it is akin to watering every part of a tree except its roots and expecting it to grow. The internal realities of the Christian are what define true growth in Christ. And then a little later in the chapter, he quotes from his church historian and theologian of revival, Richard Lovelace. Lovelace writes, Much that we have interpreted as a defect of sanctification in the church, in church people, is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure people. Much less secure than non-Christians because they have too much light to rest easy under the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they are supposed to have. So he's saying that we have to come to grips with the reality of our salvation. We have to understand that our justification has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus. He did it. 
It's that outside work that affects us on the inside. And sanctification is an inside work that he is doing that then affects the outside. He said we get all backwards. We tend to determine whether we're saved by how we feel about our salvation. Well, guess what? When I'm not walking with the Lord in a mo given moment, when I've given in to temptation, I don't feel saved. And so then I can conclude, well, maybe I'm not saved. Well, no, my salvation has nothing to do with my behavior. It has everything to do with His. And then we think, well, sanctification, instead of it being an internal work that produces external fruit, I think I've got to do the outside stuff in my own flesh, and that will somehow make me grow. I'm just spreading the food all over my arms and, and thinking I'm going to be nourished. It's a, it's a work that's internal. It's the work of the Spirit taking the truth of God's Word and working it in us that will produce fruit. It's the fruit of God, the fruit of the Spirit of God in our life. So, we can be very much guilty of what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 3 about an, a righteousness or, or, or a godliness appearance of a godliness, but no reality of it inside. Denying the power. We must pursue right actions, but those actions are the actions that are the fruit of genuine relationship with God, where God is at work in us. Actions that are in line that flow out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, this is why we so emphasize the being in God's Word consistently, developing relationship with Him. We live in light of our salvation. Secondly, we should learn from the example of growing believers. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example. Literally it says, brethren, become an imitator of mine. Of me. <laughs> Paul says, do what I do. I don't believe he's talking about just mimic on the outside what I do. He's talking about learning. He's talking about living out. This, what he called in Galatians 2.20, the crucified life, right? I'm crucified with Christ, no longer I who live. Life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It's Christ's life in us. We look to people who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit in their life, and we say, they have something. I, I can learn from them. He says, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Again, the same pursuit, this singular focus Paul had to press on toward the goal of prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word observe means to spy out, to give attention to, to observe intently, spend time with them. So we follow the example of those who are following Christ. 
follow the example. In fact, Peter, in his uh, words to the, the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. Here's his, his instruction to the elders of the church. And this is, this is critically important that those of us in spiritual leadership in the local church take this seriously. It says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily. Not because you have to. Not because someone's coercing you. Because you want to do this. According to the will of God. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Not for what you benefit from, but do it eagerly. Not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. The admonition, part of the admonition to spiritual leaders is to live an example before others. We're to look to those. And so for those of us who are privileged with that responsibility, we need to understand the responsibility that it is. And there is a one day where we will stand before God and give an account in a way that nobody else will. That's why James says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because you will incur stricter judgment. We live with that reality. Peter says, embrace it. And do it right. Because others will learn from your example. And again, it's not just about imitating external behavior. But letting the person, the life that, that you look to, impact you. You can't do that if you don't have a relationship. Again, I've quoted this before, but Howard Hendricks used to say, you can, you can, inf or you can uh, uh, impress people from a distance, but you can only impact them up close. We can be impressed by, by watching other people out there who are you know, online or whatever, and we, we don't know anything about them or whatever. We can be impressed. We can learn from them, certainly. But you're impacted up close, personally, through relationships. If that wasn't true, then why would God have established local church? Why wouldn't he just, you know, we live in a day and age now where you can get online and watch some of the greatest preachers. People are far better at bringing the word of God than I can do. And you can sit at home and watch them week after week and, and just fill your head with knowledge and, and just be so, right, all this. But it's true, personal relationships that we're impacted. Because those people out there aren't saying to you, so how, how are things going for you? How is your walk with Jesus? How is your relationship with your spouse? How are things going with your kids? Are you, are you struggling? Is there some way I can pray for you? How can I walk alongside of you through this, this struggle that you're having right now? That's what the body of Christ is locally to be. And we're to be doing that for each other. And you don't have to be in a position of spiritual Authority 
to do that. We are to be doing that with each other. The, the mandate of Jesus to the church is make disciples of all peoples. And we're to be doing that, all of us. And we do it through relationship. So we should be pursuing relationships with other people. We should be pursuing relationships with people who, who we look to and say, I can learn from this person. We should be pursuing relationships with people that we can help. Somebody once said, everybody needs a Paul and everyone needs a Timothy. Everyone needs someone they can look to and say, I need, I need to learn. I need to keep growing. Somebody who can hold me accountable and somebody that can help me grow up. And I also need somebody that I can help along. I can pick them up and help them keep going. It's not about looking and saying, well, I've reached a certain level of spiritual maturity. No, it's about asking God to show you who he would have you to be in relationship with that you can help along the way or you can be helped by. And sometimes it's the same person. It just depends on the situation. So we need to be pursuing relationships with each other so we can grow together. And then he gives a warning in verses 18 and 19. I think we're to be careful of those who are following the world. There are several important statements he makes here that I want to elaborate on. He says, for many walk. Jesus said, there's a, a broad road and a narrow road. There are many who are walking that broad road that leads to what? Destruction. But few are those who walk the narrow path that leads to life. Just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean it's right. Just because our culture has embraced it doesn't mean it's right. Be careful. says they're enemies of the cross. Anyone who proclaims to be teaching Christian truth but does not hold the cross of Jesus Christ as absolutely essential is not teaching Christian truth. Because without the cross, it's just moral teaching. It's just maybe niceties. It might be helpful in, in how you uh, treat other people. But it's not transformative. Because without the cross, there are no Christians. And there are very popular people out there proclaiming a Christian message but never talk about sin or the need for the cross. They're nothing more than motivational speakers. Be careful. For Paul says they're enemies of the cross of Christ. If they do not hold the cross of Christ to be a value, their end is destruction. These are unbelievers. God is their appetite. It's, 
it's, they've, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They've gone after other gods. Things that satisfy their fleshly nature. Their glory is in their shame. And again, what a description of our culture. It seems the more shameful something is in the sight of God, the more we celebrate it. And make it a norm. I don't believe that's by accident. It's a ploy of the enemy. Their glory is in their shame. And they set their minds on earthly things. Same word. Mind here is the same word for attitude in verse 15. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. And they set it on earthly things. Their focus is on this stuff, this life, all that this is about. And we need to be very careful. Because this bug infects us. We're prone to this stuff. I am. I like my, my comforts and the pleasures of this world. And though we're told we can enjoy them, we cannot make them our God. Be careful. That our mindset is not focused on this world, this earthly stuff. Paul, I believe, is contrasting that attitude with the attitude he has that he's calling us all to have. And that is an attitude that puts, lifts Christ up as the goal of our life. To know Christ so deeply. To surrender so profoundly that His life is in us and His life is flowing through us. The third admonition is that we should eagerly await the return of Jesus. He says our citizenship not being here and on earth but is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior. So we should eagerly wait for the return of Jesus. And next week we're going to look at why this is true based upon what he says in 20 and 21, and how this helps us pursue spiritual maturity. But as we conclude today, I want us to think about where is our mindset? Do we have the attitude that Paul had? Pursuing this one thing I do. Reaching forward to that goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. That's going to look different in your life than it does in mine. It takes into account what you are doing with your life, the profession that you have, the people in your life, the things that God has given you, the, the opportunities that are there, the way it looks and lives it out. Those are going to look different in each of our lives. But is that the pursuit? Or is your mindset, your attitude of the earthly things, it's all about what I can gather up, what I can I can take pleasure in what I can do. What, it's all about me. What I can consume for myself. It's critically important that you evaluate this in your life. That you determine before God where you are in this journey. Let us pray.
our gracious Father. Thank you for laying out for us these realities. It's hard to hear. Lord, in so many ways, we want our cake and eat it too. We want to have our salvation secured, but we want to live our life the way we want to live our life. God, you lay out a contrast here that is striking, that it's either one or the other. Oh God, I pray that you will help each one of us who earnestly desire what you want for us to take seriously this evaluation. Do I want what God wants for my life or do I want what I want for my life? Lord, we'll put a stake in the sand right here and now. God, would you guide us in this process? Grow us up. And then, Lord, use us. As you work in us and through us to accomplish your will. Use us to help others in the journey until we all attain to a mature place. The fullness of the stature which belongs to the, the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Lord, do a work in us. Thank you. That you don't leave us here alone. You don't leave us to figure it out on our own. You are at work in us. Lord, to will and to work for your good pleasure. Make it so, O oh Lord, make it so. For it's in Jesus' mighty name we ask. Amen.